Psalm 46. Let's hear the word of the Lord, and I'll pray, and you can sit, and we will go through our lesson. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and Lord, we worship you, that you are our fortress and you are the refuge for us, Lord, and that we can come to you in times of trouble. And Lord, we praise you that you are a God who cares for us. And Lord, we um, lift up um, how you have um, used men in the history of your church, Lord, to build your church and to preserve your church. And today on this Reformation Sunday, Lord, of the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses at the church in Wittenberg, Lord, we all the more are grateful for your great preservation of your church. And Lord, we praise you that we are recipients of that heritage. And Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, understand greatly, more, more greatly today, how you have preserved your church and how you've been at work. And Lord, I pray that that would give us encouragement to live our lives uh, for your glory and to be part of your plan um, as, as your church continues to be built. So, Lord, I ask that you would bless this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay. Oh, here is everyone. Hello. It's like I closed my eyes and the church doubled. <laughs> okay, you should have a handout and we are working on the PowerPoint presentation. So uh, hopefully you'll have some neat graphics to go along with what we're talking about. All right, so you guys know that two days from now will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation's beginning. And that is usually marked by... October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailing uh, 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. That's what we're going to talk about today. So I've kind of purposefully wanted to talk about um, the 95 theses and then the next three years of Luther's life. So today we're going to cover the years pretty much 1517 to 1521. So we're not, it's, that's, that is a hopeful attempt that we will do. Usually I prepare about six, five and a half to six pages of notes, and today I have nine. So I hope you have a handout because we will be going quickly. Um, last week we talked about Luther's early life, and the primary things we talked about, and I'm just going to say this quickly 
uh, for the sake of time, but you can listen to the lecture from last week. Uh, one thing we learned was Luther is a medieval man. So he grows up in the medieval age, and he's kind of growing into his views, both in theology and philosophy and humanism, as he becomes a reformer. And we'll touch on that as we go forward now. But he kind of stands in the precipice between the medieval world and the modern world, right? Major things are happening, changing the world, new discoveries, whether it's the size of the planet, other lands, uh, telescopes, the printing press, all these things are ushering in the modern era. And Luther is kind of the figure that stands one foot in the medieval and one foot in the modern era. Last week we talked about many of significant experiences in his life. And I felt like potentially I might have explained his experiences too much. Yet, I think it's important to understand there's these marks in Luther's life that have a major impact on his life. Um, and partly, it's important to understand that those experiences don't necessarily happen outside of just normal everyday circumstances as well. So, as he's grappling with his faith and coming to faith in Christ, there's diligent, everyday, arduous Bible study as well. Um, and there's a lot going on. And when he's a monk and he's trying to earn his way to sa for sal into salvation by doing everything that a monk does, it's a daily grind for him. So it's not just one experience after another, but there's a lot of life that goes into it. So the things we talked about last week as far as his experiences that impacted him were his relationship with his father, um, him being caught in the thunderstorm when he decided to join the monastery, um, his ordainment mass, um, his trip or his pilgrimage to Rome as a, as, a, as a monk in the Augustinian monastery. And then we kind of belabored the point of his torment of soul. You know, how could he be right uh, before a righteous and holy God? How could he, a sinful man, find favor with God? We talked about his tower experience. And this is kind of the, what we would call his evangelical breakthrough when he kind of reads Romans and he starts to understand that the justification that he gets is by faith. Uh, that's available to him is by faith and the righteousness that is imparted to him through Christ is what he needs not the righteousness of his own but there's a righteousness outside of himself so we talked about that I referenced that last week and I put it in in a nice place because I thought it fit my lesson there's controversy as to when that actually occurred in Luther did it happen prior to him nailing the 95 theses in 1517 there are many re there are several sources that say that Perhaps you're being faithful and listening to other things this Reformation season, and some of those folks will say 1518 is when that happened, uh, when he's studying Galatians, or potentially even 1520. So, at this point, let's understand that it could be a variety of uh, dates. Um, and only Luther and the Lord really know, I think. The problem about this is Luther writes what's called his autobiographical um, explanation of his life in the 1540s. So maybe he has a little bit of revisionist history himself when he's writing back. And maybe he's written too much. And um, so it's uncertain, these exact dates. So that's a review from last week. But you'll be able to see, and I hope some of you guys attended, a lot of you attended the Reformation celebration yesterday. And we had pamphlets of the 95 Theses. And there are still some available if you didn't get one in the back. But you're going to see that in the 95 Theses, the doctrine of justifi justification by faith isn't completely fleshed out yet. So that kind of does give some credence to the fact that maybe he had his evangelical experience or breakthrough after the 95 Theses. But um, we'll talk about that in a second. All right, so 
what is the cultural context of where we are right now? Well, not the cultural context. There's a couple things we need to like lay out on the table before we get started. And that is, what is the church's stance on indulgences? And what is an indulgence? And we'll talk about that. Two things. I have no people up here yet, but that's okay. <laughs> We're going to have some nice pictures of the, the main characters as we go through our story, hopefully. If not, I'll just make faces and it'll illustrate who they are. So two papal bulls that are important for us to understand the idea of indulgences. One is Eugenitus, and that was issued in 1343 by Pope Clement VI. And in this papal bull, it propagated the idea of the treasury of merit. So the idea of the, tre the treasury of merit is where the surpluses of meritorious grace were held. So let's say you're a super saint in the Catholic Church, and you have more merit unto, into your account than you need in order to go directly to heaven. You can, the treasury of merit allows for your excess merit um, to be put into an account separate from you so somebody else could access later. So we've set up this treasury. We haven't. The Catholic Church at this point has set up the treasury of merit. So these were the works that were done while Catholic saints were alive that were beyond what they needed. They were works of super, super erogation. And in this treasury of merit, the Pope held the keys. So he could do with what he wanted. I mean, if you, own, if you have the treasure, you can give it to whoever you want. Um, so that's the first thing. The second one, papal bull that's important, is called Salvatore Noster. And that was issued in 1476 by Pope Sixtus IV. I always got to love good Pope names. Um, this allows for the transfer of merit from the treasury to the accounts of those people who are in purgatory. Okay? And the idea of purgatory had really taken off in the Middle Ages. Purgatory was first introduced in the church by Augustine, so one of our favorites from church history, St. Augustine. Um, he develops the idea of purgatory around about, probably about 450 A.D. Um, as a place where unbaptized dead infants go. Okay, so just so if you have a if you have a baby that doesn't get baptized, what happens to the baby? Um, obviously, baptism was a very key part of the early of the Middle Age Church, um, and the thought is if you're not baptized, you can't go to heaven. But in the Middle Ages, purgatory is tied to the Pentateuch. The, the, the sacramental system. So if um, it is directly connected to um, how you are performing the sacraments. Um, so one is um, not faithful in doing those as well, or they've sinned a great deal and haven't done works to um, um, cover over uh, those uh, sins that they've done. person would be expected to live some time in purgatory. Um, based on me knowing most of y'all in that system, you probably would end up in purgatory. So there's a couple of you, like my wife, she wouldn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the question. I need the Pope to help me, give her some of her extra meritorious grace to me. So think about that. As a, middle, a person in the Middle Ages, um, you most likely are destined for purgatory. So I need to help, I need help in order to get myself out of purgatory. Um, 
And also, I'm concerned about the fact that most of my loved ones are going to purgatory, and they're going to spend a significant amount of time there, most likely. And if you know your relatives really well, that's probably true. You know that about them. And this is the basis for indulgences. So an indulgence is a certificate um, that could lessen either a person's time or their dead family's time in purgatory by a mere cash transaction. So that's the basis. So we have this idea that someone can purchase an indulgence, um, which is basically a certificate issued by the Pope to um, allow someone to be in purgatory less time. Okay? Purgatory is not a happy place. Um, it's kind of the middle way between heaven and hell. Um, probably closer to hell than heaven. So um, not a happy place. So we have this idea in the Middle Ages of indulgences. So what's going on in the culture at this point, though? That's where we are now. If you're on your handout, you should have the following blanks filled in. 1343, merit, 1476, and indulgences. All right. So in the early 16th century, that's the 1500s, the papacy is in financial crisis. And that's for a variety of reasons. And I have to really temper myself not to get into all these political things because it kind of gets me excited. But uh, the papacy is, it's almost a civil magistrate as well as an ecclesiastical one. They're fighting wars. There's the years of division where we had, you know, popes in different areas we've talked about in the past. Um, that created expenses that they had. Uh, the pope and the bishops had years and years of just indulgent living um, and that was, imp that was impacting the, the wealth of the, of the church. Um, they also had taken on extravagant building projects. I mean, they hired the greatest artists of all time to build and to decorate and to ordain, ordain adorn their, um, their places of worship. I mean, Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo and these types, that's, that those guys probably aren't cheap. So the church is having to pay for them. So the, the church has a financial issue going on. But they also have some very powerful people that are involved in the church, right? Everybody's part of the church. This is the western part of the world. And this one guy, who is our first character, who is not on the screen, which is unfortunate, is Bill, Bishop Albrecht of Mance. So he owns, this is odd, he owns the bishopric for two um, areas already. And that's allowed by church law. And, but he is not satisfied having two. He wants a third. So canon law in the church says you can have two, but you can have three if the Pope allows you. And how's the, so the Pope, at this time, is motivated um, by needing some money. Why would Albrecht want to have a third bishopric? That's a good question. I mean, that just means that you got to do, you have more oversight, you have more responsibility, right? But you also have taxing authority. And so the, the bishop oversaw the taxation that was going on in the Holy Roman Empire at the time. So it was a lucrative opportunity for him. So he has taxing powers. Um, so he pursues wanting a third um, area to rule in church life. And he wants to get a license from the Pope. And he does buy the license from the Pope. The Pope at this time is Leo X. He is the second person that's on your imaginative screen 
Leo X. Leo is not a moral figure. He's not a figure we look up to for piety. Um, he's part of a very famous family. Not, he's not appointed to the papacy because of his great theological mind or his devotion to the church. It's more he's appointed to the papacy. And, there, and this time there is a, a group of popes that are appointed just because of the, their family connections and the economic impact of that. So the powerful are coming together and so as, as uh, kingdoms are uniting in some ways, so are families having influence over the church. Leo said, since God has given us the papacy, let's enjoy it. So let's get, let's get Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Um, that's what's important to him, is enjoying his role as the pope, not necessarily um, feeding the flock or the faithful. So Albrecht gets the certificate from the pope, now, this certificate, he doesn't just say, hey, can I have this certificate? He has to pay for it. And Albert needs some money. Um, so he goes to a famous family in Germany, the Fuggers, or the Fugers, and he uh, gets a loan from them. So he gets a loan. Let's say it's a million dollars in today's money. He gets, a, he gets the loan. He pays the million dollars to the Pope and to the church. So the, the church gets the money for the license. Additionally, he has to pay the loan back, so he's got to find some source of income to do that. He requests of the Pope the, the ability to raise what's called an indulgence in the areas in which he governed or ruled. So Albrecht then begins to allow indulgences to be sold. Great deal for the papacy right here, though, is that not only... So he's going to make money. Half the money he gets from selling indulgences will go to pay off the loan, pay off the debt. The other half goes to the papacy to pay for the right for him to sell indulgences. So, I mean, that's a pretty lucrative deal, right? I mean, if I could loan you money and you pay me, or I could allow you to lo get a loan and you could pay me back, and then whatever proceeds you're getting, I'm getting 50% on, that's pretty good money. So the papacy's getting some wealth now because of this. And their desire... And Leo's desire at this point is to finance the construction that he's of St. Peter's. Okay, so when you see the beautiful, ornate uh, building, um, artistry, um, ornate um, construction, whatever you want to call it, of St. Peter's, you need to think that it was paid for by selling indulgences uh, to the German people. Makes it less beautiful, doesn't it? Um, so, how are they going to accomplish this? They hire the third character on our figurative screen, Johann Tetzel. So, Albert and the Fugers know this guy and know that he can be the one they can use to sell indulgences. Let's see. So, Tetzel is hired by Albrecht. I could describe him as a despicable hawker, H-A-W-K-E-R, of indulgences. He's a very profane man. He's a, he's a, um, he is a Dominican priest, though, so he's of the Dominican order. The Dominicans are the order of preachers um, at this time. And they're, along with the Franciscans, the most, um, most um, influential of the, uh, of the uh, monasteries. 
But he's a very profane man. Um, and if you, I'll let you investigate how profane he was. I won't do that here. But as he came to town, it was much like the circus coming to town. And what he did is he brought a sideshow with him and the opportunity for people to buy these papal indulgences. He preyed on people's fears and their lack of biblical understanding. Yet he's not allowed to go where Luther is. That's right, it's because Luther has made a stand, right? No, that's not, not yet, he hasn't made a stand. Um, he's not allowed to go to the area of Saxony in Germany. Um, the ruler of Saxony at the time is Frederick the Wise. We introduced him to you last week. He was the one on the picture that had a really wide face. And he is the elector of that area, so the governor, I would say. And Frederick didn't want Tetzel going into his area because he had a massive collection of relics. So relics, for those of you here yesterday, might be a bone or a cup or something of somebody famous or a piece of the cross, um, you know, a piece of Moses' staff. Just think of anything that could potentially be something neat to see. That's what they claim for relic to be. And his collection of relics was massive. So let me give you some, some data on that just for fun. In 1509, he had 5,005 relics in his museum. In 1518, this is after the 95 Thesis, by the way, he had 17,443, and in, those relics included a veil sprinkled with Christ's blood, a twig of the burning bush, because we know it didn't burn up, so there could be twigs somewhere that lasted 3,000 years, but, and a piece of bread from the Last Supper. By 1520, he had almost 20,000 relics, and it was said, so what would happen is someone would want to go see his relics and that would be a good work. It would be a pilgrimage they would do. And if one visited his relics on All Saints Day, which is coming up, November 1st, if you're interested in visiting these, I'm sure they're not around anymore, and you paid the fee to look at the relics, you would reduce your time via an indulgence um, in purgatory by 1,902,202 years. So if you went and saw these, if you walked around these 20,000 relics that were in his museum, you would lessen your time in purgatory by almost 2 million years. What I find shocking, oh, well, it's also and 270 days. I find shocking that it was to that minute detail how much time you would. Um, so what does that tell you? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there might be some element of that, but I, I would think that there's some faithful people that truly believe this is accurate. Um, and then some people are going to say, this is what the church teaches, and I accept what the church teaches. There might be someone down the road that might agree with that, but I think you've got such a hierarchy of tradition passed down that it's, it's a reality. I mean, it's not a reality that happens, but it's a reality for people, yeah. There, I mean, I think in any... Um, yeah, there, there's, there's a level of belief that it is accurate. Yeah. I think even the top probably believes it. I mean, I, I, there's probably, I mean, if, I don't know. I could go on a tangent, but I won't. Because um, I have seven more pages to go. <laughs> but I could, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to engage you guys about that later. Um, so Luther 
Oh, so the reason that Tetzel doesn't, isn't allowed into Saxony is because it would impact Frederick the Wise's pocketbook. So Frederick the Wise, we hold up as this great character, and there's some really important aspects to his life, yet there are some parts to him that we don't find attractive either. Um, for Luther, this becomes a concern. For his congregants are going to neighboring villages across the river, and they're purchasing uh, these indulgences. And that's where it becomes a pastoral problem for Luther. Um, we can't get beyond the fact that this is not just Luther disagreeing with the theology of indulgent selling or the abuse of that. But he sees people similar to him, tormented in soul of how will I be right before a holy God, and they get a papal certificate. And that's the crux of the matter for Luther at this point. Um, it's a pastoral issue. So he begins to preach against Tetzel and the way he's selling indulgences in 1516. Uh, you might be familiar with some of the Tetzel quotes. Some of the ones I've found here have a little bit different spin than we've said in the past. And this is how Tetzel would um, promote his indulgences, preying on people's guilt, potentially. Do you not hear the voices of your dead relatives and others crying out to you and saying, pity us, pity us? For we are in dire punishment and torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. And will you not? So, yeah, you're thinking that you can help your grandparents or your parents or maybe a child that has passed away. I mean, mortality rates are high. Get out of purgatory. And that's what the authorities are telling you. As a person in the Middle Ages in the, this period, you're going to follow suit. And then Tetzel would say, once the coin in the coffer clings... A soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Tetzel claimed his indulgences were more powerful to cover sins um, than the waters of baptism. They believed people were saved at baptism. And he even compared his indulgences to having equivalent um, effic uh, effic efficacy as the blood of Christ. So he said you could commit the most horrid sins and his indulgences were capable of um, satisfying God's wrath from you. So that's where we come to Luther in the 95 Thesis. So that's our next point. Let me see. You should be point two on your handout. So Luther is concerned about these indulgences. That's his primary concern. But we would be wrong to think that Luther at this point is, is completely against the idea of indulgences. And really the 95 Theses are his response to the abuse of indulgences at this point. He sees indulgences as taking away the need for repentance. So no one's really truly repenting. They're just buying something in order to um, uh, satisfy in some way, God's wrath towards them. But they're not really changing. They're not asking for forgiveness. So he sees this as a sort of cheap grace that requires nothing of the purchaser, except for their money. Um, they trick a man into thinking they are okay, okay before God because they have this certificate. So he's starting to teach and preach against the idea of the indulgent selling and the abuse in which Tetzel's doing it. And yet, there's other things he's doing. In 1517, in September, he writes a disputation against scholastic theology. 
And this is where we really see Luther beginning to attack those who had trained him in the medieval education in which he was um, raised. He especially attacks the use of Aquinas, or how Aquinas used Aristotle in his uh, theological system. And in 1517, in this disputation against scholastic theology, he produced 97 theses. So it's kind of a, this is a, this is a theme for Luther. He's just going to throw out statements over and over. That's what a thesis is. It's like, hey, it's a statement, and I want to talk about it. It's a debate. So he starts doing that against scholastic theology. And that's important because that kind of starts to under, undermine um, the, the theology of the church of the day. Yet, and he's probably more controversial when he's going against scholastic theology than he is when he posts the 95 Theses. Um, there's more controversial things he says in September than October, but it's October that gets him in trouble. Um, so his scholastic theology Theses go unnoticed for the most part. And that brings us to October 31st, 1517. He nails his 95 Theses against the practice of indulgence selling to the church door in Wittenberg, in Wittenberg. And that shouldn't be thought of as, and we don't have my picture, but there's some artwork out there, right? So you can see a picture of Luther with a hammer and a nail. Okay, maybe he pasted it too, but we like hammers and nails too. Um, but with all the crowd of people around him, and we shouldn't think of it that way. We shouldn't think Luther, 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 we shouldn't think that Luther thought he was starting a revolution. Um, so he didn't have like the commoners following him. He's like, I'm going to nail my 95 theses. That's not what happened. Um, the Castle Door Church is the place you put announcements, especially if you wanted to debate something academically or scholarly, you would do that. And if Luther thought he was really um, starting a reformation, he probably wouldn't have written the 95 theses in Latin. But he did. So they're written in Latin, and his desire is to see that there be a scholastic debate about these things. And that's his goal. A scholarly debate, unfortunately, for the most part, will not take place. In the intro to the 95 Theses, he says, this is a disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences out of love and zeal for truth and desire to bring to light. Um, and I, you're more than willing to pick up a copy of the 95 Theses, but they might help you go to bed tonight if you read them. Um, there's a lot of technical medieval uh, language in them in some ways. They're not this great, it's not, it's not the Declaration of Independence, you know? It's not that great, <laughs> but I, we did print a lot for you so you can look at them. But it is, this is what's used um, by the Lord at this point to bring the church to Reformation. Um, so it is surprising that it becomes an important tract. It's not anti-Pope at this point. There's a lot of references to the Pope and almost Luther's submission to him. So that might surprise you if you read them. Luther will get to that point, and he'll get to that point today if I get to the end. He thinks that if the Pope just knew what Tetzel was doing and how he was doing it, he would stop it. Um, in 1545, he even writes, probably in his autobiography, as he's reflecting back on his life, he tells us to read his earlier works with discernment. He says this, 
Above all things, I beseech the Christian reader and beg him for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ to read my earlier books very circumspectly and with much pity, knowing that before now I too was a monk and one of the right frantic and raving papists. When I took up the matter against indulgences, I was so fallen drunken, not literally, and taken by papal doctrine that I would commit murder in the name of the Pope. So at this point, he's just like, I just want to correct something that's going wrong. That's his thought right here. Um, he would see uh, potentially at this point in his life indulgences as a legitimate practice if they were, not if they were detached from personal repentance. Um, so they were, they were an okay practice if it allowed for personal repentance as well. What he feared was Tetzel was squaring away sin for just a mere cash transaction. Cheap grace. Yet, some of the theses are important. Number one says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Okay, that's good. Um, so that you can see some formulation of what he's saying. Um, 32 says, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. 62, the, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. In 66, he attacks indulgences. He says, the treasure of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. Um, so what happens when these are, what happens after he nails them to the door at Wittenberg? Um, they are very quickly printed and translated into German. And I don't know if this would be, I haven't stumbled upon anything that says Luther was the initiator behind this. Other people got these things and started printing them. Um, yet, this is kind of the beginning of where we see how important the use of the print medium is for Luther. Eventually, he hit, in Wittenberg, he'll have several, several printers printing his work because um, he's writing so much, so many pamphlets. He even hires an artist to help him illustrate his pamphlets that's just dedicated to describing, because not always would the people that would get his pamphlets be able to read, because they could look at his um, Doonesbury or whatever cartoon uh, depiction of that. Is Doonesbury still out there in the paper? No? Um, how, so just some facts here about Luther and printing. From the years 1518 to 1525, there are approximately 7 million printed works in the German lands. 30% of them were Luther's. So that sounds like a little less than 2 million. Um, within two weeks of the posting of the 95 Theses, um, they were all over Europe. And within one month, they had made it to England. So they, they'd spread like wildfire. And the printers of the day were quick to do it. So the printers, I think Jason talked about this, the printers are young, right? The, the people that were part of the old medieval age weren't getting involved in printing. So um, these were the Google guys or the social media guys, you know. So they were, and young people, right? They always want change, right? Um, so they were the initiators behind getting Luther's word out, these printers were. So Luther probably didn't grasp um, how you would actually do any printing. He probably didn't really understand that, but he understood the power of the medium of printing. Luther not only 
he felt like he was so much in the right, he sent a copy of this to Albrecht and said, hey, this is what I've written. Let's talk about these. This is what Tetzel's doing. Um, and Albrecht forwarded it to the Pope and to the Emperor Maximilian. And Albrecht requested assistance to intervene. And this, this is where the church fails. This is the very first thing they do. If they really saw Luther as a big problem at this point, they would have dealt with him. But they didn't see him as a big problem. So the church didn't have the foresight to see what was going on here. Um, but if they had just taken Luther right here, seized him, put him in jail, and they probably could have killed him, right? Um, that's what they did to people that they disagreed with at the time. Um, this would have slowed down any potential reformation. I think ultimately it would have happened because the system was broken, obviously in need of repair. And the Lord caused them to act that way as well. So our next point is Luther against the church, but I've also given you a Latin term there, which is contramundum, which is really Luther against the world, because this is Luther as you're going to have several um, different opportunities that Luther is going to hope to present his case, but as he is presenting his case, it's like against a greater and greater authority in each case. Um, so this is the, the attempts by the church to silence him. And the first of these is at Heidelberg. The Pope says, hey, we don't really need to do much about this. This is an issue for the Augustinians to take up. Um, the Augustinian order has authority as um, the chief order uh, that Luther is in as far as his monastic vows. And they say, hey, you've got a renegade professor here. Deal with him. Okay. So the Pope lets them do that. So at Heidelberg, I think this is in 1518, there's a regular meeting of the Augustinians. There they allow Luther to lay out his arguments. And he does that. And what does he do? He presents more theses. 40 of them, per se. Uh, 28 of them are theological, 12 are philosophical. And he makes an argument to the August, uh, Augustinian order about this. Um, at this meeting is a man named Martin Bucer. And he's a very important reformer in Strasbourg here in the next 10 to 15 years. And he'll be key to the Swiss uh, Reformation. Um, Bucer, though, gets there and he sees that Luther's not just talking about correcting the immoralities of the church at this point. He's starting to see the theology behind the errors of the church. So he's a little bit dismayed, but he learned much from Luther there. Uh, at this point, the humanists are mostly concerned, and this is Erasmus is the chief humanist of the age, are mostly concerned about correcting the corruption that's in the church. So that's a reality, yet Luther's starting to show the theology behind that, that's uh, creating that. Here he outlines his view of the theologian of the cross versus the church's version of the theologian of glory. We're not getting into that today. We will talk about that in two weeks. Um, he it begins to unpack the idea of justification by faith and that justification is the result of God declaring people righteous, not someone working unto their righteousness. The, August, the Augustinians, Augustinians at this point did not find a reason to correct Luther. So there's a decent amount of Augustinians that are now dedicated to the study of Augustine and they're starting to see some of the theological errors of the church. And so they're kind of becoming this close-knit of people. So, 
The church's first response at Heidelberg is to say, you guys deal with it, and they don't deal with it, okay? So it's still a problem. Um, so Luther is just given the opportunity probably to um, increase his ideas of reformation, and now they are beginning to have theological underpinnings. So there's another meeting that's called in 1518 at Augsburg. Um, and at Augsburg, this is actually a collection of a variety of both church leaders and princes of the area. At this point, there had been some responses by the papacy and his minions. His, one of his guys had written a book or a response to Luther. It says it's the dialogue against the presuppositions of Martin Luther. And he says that Luther is so simple-minded, it only took him three days to write it. Um, Luther receives it. Luther receives this work. He reprints it, and along with his response, and in the preface says it only took him two days to write it. So this is the idea that the Italian um, papists and those that are in control, that there's no way that this German really knows what he's talking about. You know, there's this idea that he's just drunk on beer all the time, and he's not refined like we are in Italy. You can't dismiss the reality of that as we see Luther gaining, gaining more popularity. Other thing is, Luther received this book, and it opposed him. When you get something that opposes you in that day, you burn it. Luther didn't burn it. He saw the genius of, hey, this is his argument. Here's my rebuttal. You get all the information. Make a decision for yourself. Um, along with the snide remark that he did it in one fewer day, one less day. But the church silenced opposition. Luther, in some ways, um, is saying, hey, this is what everybody's saying. I want you to understand what I'm saying against what they are. So he wrote at this time also, this is prior to Augsburg, his explanation of the 95 Theses, where he gives some more weight behind what he's trying to say at the 95 Theses and a little bit more um, evangelical in his view as well. Um, at this point, the Dominicans, this is all prior to Augsburg, but it's under your Augsburg uh, label. The Dominicans requested that Luther be summoned to Rome. Okay, so Luther is like, I've been summoned to Rome. I'm not coming home if I've been summoned to Rome. Um, I'm, a, I've, I'm pretty much a heretic at this point. I am going to go to Rome and die. Um, reformers don't have a very good track record in going against the Catholic Church, most notably John Huss. Yet, fortunately for Luther, by God's providence, Frederick prevented him uh, from going to Rome. He says, Luther's a German. We're going to handle this in Germany. Not national Germany, but the groups of people that make up the Germanic lands. He can only get a fair trial in Germany. So Pope Leo and the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian agree to this, not to send him to Rome. And the Holy Roman Emperor, here's the political stuff, and the Pope need Frederick at this point. They need him because Maximilian's going to die soon. He wants to appoint his successor, and they need Frederick to help elect that person. So they, kinda, they have to tiptoe a little bit around Frederick at this point. Um, the emperor is more is equally concerned or more concerned potentially with the attack of the Ottoman Empire on their eastern border than he is what Luther is doing. So finally, we get to Augsburg. Uh, Luther was promised safe passage. 
So was Huss, by the way, in Prague. Um, and he submits to a three-day interview with Cardinal Cayetan, or Cajetan. Cajetan outlined for Luther the errors that he had. And most, the thing he was most concerned about were Luther's um, denial of the existence of the treasury of merit. Luther appealed for a public hearing before a competent university of judges, competent judges from universities, yet he was not given that. At the conclusion of his interview with Cajetan, Luther made his appeal not to councils and popes of the past who stand in contradiction to each other, but to scripture. He said, I deny that the pope is above scripture. His holiness abuses scripture. Um, Cajetan told him he needed to recant and he was ordered to arrest Luther and send him to Rome. Yet Luther fled in the middle of the night and returned to Wittenberg. We know this because Luther wrote about it as soon as he got back to Wittenberg. So we have a pretty detailed account of his interviews with Cajetan and what happened. Um, and then Frederick comes to the rescue again saying, at this point the Pope's like, Frederick, go get Luther, send him to Rome. That's the problem. And Frederick said that the Saxons did not in turn, intend to turn Luther in since they did not believe him to be a heretic. And that was December of 1518. So, now we've talked about two attempts to silence Luther, and he's still out. Um, in 1519, Emperor Maximilian dies, um, and the Pope is less aggressive at this point towards Luther. And again, he needs Frederick's support. And a truce was called between Luther and the church. In fact, Cajetan had one of his underlings meet with Tetzel, and his indulgent selling was retired at this point. And Tetzel was retired and put out to pasture. He was returned, he returned to a monastery somewhere else. Yet, the church couldn't keep their mouth shut, and Johann Eck gets involved and begins uh, debating, opening a, a dialogue with one of Luther's colleagues at the Augustinian order in Wittenberg. And this guy's name is Karlstadt, who will have a we'll have an interesting discussion about him next week. Um, so Luther saw X E C K X uh, dialogue with Karlstadt as a way for him to get Luther involved to break the truce that they had. So Eck and Karlstadt arranged for a debate in Leipzig. Um, prior to Leipzig, this disputation, Charles V, who was the king of Spain is elected the Holy Roman Emperor. So now the Holy Roman Emperor has all the Germanic lands, and he has Spain, and you've got somebody in the middle, and that's the French king. The question was, is it going to be the French king or the Spanish king that becomes the Holy Roman Emperor? But the electors, like Frederick, vote for um, Charles V. Um, that was in June, oh, in June 1519, um, the the, the the uh, debate between Eck and Karlstadt occurs. Uh, Leipzig, or Leipzig, is a rival electorate to Saxony. They're very orthodox in their views, so it was a place that Eck picked out thinking that he would have much sympathy. Its university was established by the German-speaking people who had fled Prague during the days of Huss. These connections in history are really fascinating uh, to see God's hand at work there. Um, yet they left because Huss was doing uh, reforming type things in Prague. So they were Orthodox Catholics. Um, Karlstadt goes to the debate with Eck, and he is joined by two guys, at least, Luther and Melanchthon. 
Melanchthon had been recently appointed a professor of language at Wittenberg, I think of Greek. Um, they also were joined not only by, it wasn't just the three of them, but also 200 students from Wittenberg. Okay, so now we've got like a, we've got an army of people showing up. Um, they didn't have a view. These guys didn't have a view that they were going to these meetings and they were safe. But maybe in numbers, a number of 200 people, there is safety. Um, Eck outperforms Karlstadt in the debates. And then Luther gets his turn, providentially. Um, Eck debates Luther on the nature of the papacy and the Roman church. Um, Luther was arguing that the church was founded on Christ alone, not on people, on people, on Peter and the resulting line of popes. Um, he even argued that the papal historical documents that prove that, according to the papacy, are forgeries, which is accurate history, by the way. Um, in an attempt to silence Luther, Eck attacks him, calling him a Saxon Huss. Luther admitted that not all of Huss's doctrines were wrong. Um, and Luther constantly pointed Eck back to Scripture. So that's important that Luke, Luther didn't say that everything Huss said was wrong. So he's not saying, I agree with everything that Huss said at this point. But he's identified himself with a known heretic of the church. How is the church going to respond to that? Um, he told Eck that the future judges that would look at this debate should look at Scripture, not at church tradition, when concluding whether his statements are right or wrong. And this is Luther's boldest stand yet against the church. Um, he used the Greek New Testament to his... Um, to, to assist him, and in this, the humanists started coming to his side. Um, now Luther had put his life in square opposition to the church, and even had connected himself to a declared heretic. But he is allowed safe passage at Leipzig, and he returns to Wittenberg. And in six months, he writes 16 treatises, amounting to 400 pages. He published his commentary on Galatians, and he preached and he lectured. All he did. So for six months after Leipzig, he was working and busy about um, his studies and then communicating them as well. And then in June of 1520, the Pope is ready to act and make a decision. So he issues a papal bull against Luther. In Latin, it's exurge domine. The first lines, this is probably the only part the Pope wrote. His minions wrote the rest. He says, oh, arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. So Luther's the wild boar. That's a great, that's a great thing to think about. Because Luther, he's just going to mess things up the rest of his life, right? He's just going to unearth everything. Um, no one likes wild boars, right? Aren't we killing them in Texas now? I think we are, right? Um, oh, that's true. It is. That's right. Uh, in that, there was 41 errors outlined by the church um, describing what Luther was teaching wrong. Luther was described as the son of iniquity. He had 60 days to submit it to the Pope or he would be excommunicated. Um, they also called for all of his works to be burned and or they were banned and burned. When the word was received at Wittenberg, um, the bull and some of the works of his opponents, Luther at this time decides to burn them. He says, since they have burned my books, I burn theirs. The canon law was included because it makes the Pope a god on earth. So far as I have merely fooled with this business of the Pope, all my articles condemned by Antichrist are Christian. So now he's raising up his language about the Pope. Seldom has the Pope overcome anyone with scripture and reason. 
but we've, we've ramped it up a level here, calling the Pope Antichrist and saying that he can't be overcome in Scripture. And in January of 1521, Luther was formally excommunicated. Um, no. Okay, so Luther writes three treatises. You can research this on your own. These are very important to him, and it shows kind of the evolution of his Reformation theology. Uh, we're going to skip through that, though, and we're going to spend five minutes on the Diet of Worms. The Diet of Worms. Um, so in 1521, at some point here, he's excommunicated, yet he still is teaching at Wittenberg. Frederick does not accept his excommunication, and he's still allowed to do what he's been doing. But Frederick desires, but he's not part of the church, right? So he's not participating in the sacraments as the church would have him do. But Frederick still wants Luther to have a fair trial. So he arranges for Luther to come to the, the Diet of Worms in April of 1521. Um, Luther went only because Frederick requested that he be there because he had not had a proper hearing. Uh, this new emperor, Charles, didn't know Luther. He might see some it might be advantageous for him to understand where Luther is coming from. And Charles is trying to make his way in the relationship between the Holy Roman Emperor and the papacy. And he might say, hey, I can use Luther as a pawn in this in some way uh, to get what I want from the Pope. Um, Luther arrives in town in April of 1521, and he's greeted by the townspeople. Uh, I saw some source that said 2,000 people came out and greeted him as he came into the city. That might be German folklore from the 19th century, but um, it's interesting to think about how the common people were behind Luther um, because they knew it, because they knew what he was writing because it had been disseminated so by the printing press. Uh, Luther attends the first session, which is not a debate. They put his works in front of him at a table and say, um, are these your books? And he says, yes, these are my books. And he also says, but I've written many others. You don't have those here. Next, he's asked, do you, do you defend them all? Or do you care to reject a part? And he says, you know what? I need some time to think about that. I'm not ready to make a decision about that. Um, and the um, emperor is gracious towards him, and they give him till the next day to answer that question. So he spends the evening praying about what he should do. This is the truly seminal moment for Luther. Will he stand up to all earthly power, all that earthly power can throw against him, knowing that if he does, he'll most likely be killed? I mean, this is supreme authority. I mean, you've got the, tr the Pope isn't there, but his, his minions or his uh, followers that are most likely to execute upon what he wants to see done is there. You've got the Holy Roman Emperor there and all his, his electors. So you have all of civil authority looking at Luther. You have all of ecclesiastical authority at this point looking at Luther. And he's one man right there, and they're asking him these questions. So I just think it's important that we understand who he was and where, what he was before at that time. So he comes again the next day, and he's asked about his books. He humbly admits that he is not used to speaking in front of such illustrious people. So kind of a, you know, trying to gain some support, but you guys are more intellectual than me, maybe. And then they ask him if these are his books, and he says, well, not all of his books are the same kind. I've written different types of books. One, practical Christian living books. I couldn't condemn those, since they, all of those are agreed to be beneficial. He's written books against the papacy and the church hierarchy. 
Um, and in those, he's outlined the manipulation of the German people by the church. The German people, he needs them on his side. He says to deny these would cause the tyranny of Rome to increase. The people are going to suffer at the hand of the church if he denied those works. And then he wrote books against those he felt had opposed the gospel. That's his third type of book. Perhaps in these he had been too sharp, he says, in his attacks. Maybe he, was, maybe he could have been a little softer. That's probably true for Luther in most cases. He could be a little softer. Um, but he did that faithfully for um, the cause of Christ. So next he asked, um, he asked the audience to show him his error based on Scripture. He says, if that would be done, I shall be only too willing and ready to renounce all my errors, and I will be the first to, to want to consign my little books to the flames. His inquisitor then compared him to the Waldensians. Those are the followers of Peter Waldo in France in the 12th century. To Wycliffe and to Huss. Um, he says there's no reason to deba debate these matters. Church councils have already spoken about it. They've already condemned Luther in how these other people were treated in church councils. He asked Luther if he alone understood scripture. Really? You, you know more than the church, Luther? Are you kidding? And Luther is still kind of going back and forth about what he's saying. And finally, the inquisitor says, I must again and again insist and demand that you give your answer sincerely, frankly, and unambiguously, and without horns. Do you choose or do you not choose to revoke and retract your books and the errors which they contain? All right, so he's like, all right, Luther, that's enough. Quit being political. Quit talking. Give me an answer. All of the gathered assembly wants to know what's going on. And this is where Luther gets his, this is at the point where Luther, with all the civil and ecclesiastical authority in front of him, responds. And he'll say, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the Pope and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is, is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant Anything for me to go out to go against conscience is conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So some of you might say, hey, you're missing a part, Matt. Um, it is thought. So this is the ultimate thing. He's saying, I, I am not going to be convinced otherwise unless you can point it out by scripture. Um, and then some of our renderings say, here I stand. I can do no other. It's thought that that is added, just so you all know, historically. But it sounds, sounds really great, right? So he's standing right there in front of them. And I think that does convey the reality of what was going on there. Um, but I think um, we cannot... Um, so we really are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses and him taking the bold stance to do that. But I think the true boldness of Luther is revealed in 1521. I mean, 1517, he might have been ignorant about what he was really doing here. I just wanted to debate. And he would have been happy probably talking with other scholastics in the halls of learning about these things, hoping to correct the church. But the true uh, major moment for Luther is here, when he has all authority in front of him and he stands on the authority of Scripture. And that is the thing that I think for that moment, God empowered him. And uh, it has to be. I mean, I don't think, I, I'm pretty confident I couldn't do that. Uh, Luther, by the way, at this point is 38. I just turned 39. So he, uh, 
I couldn't do that as a 39-year-old. So, um, All right, I've gone seven minutes over. So uh, take some time to look over the three treatises of Luther. Um, if you would like, you can research those. Those are really important, and we'll touch on those the last week. And then next week, we're going to spend the, our time talking about the rest of Luther's life. So if you thought us belaboring three years or four years, um, we'll, we'll go a little faster pace next week, okay? Let's pray, and then we'll go. Father, we praise you uh, for your goodness and your kindness towards us, Lord. Oh, Lord, we praise you for how your church has been preserved and how your word has been preserved. Um, Lord, we are a grateful people, and for that we give you praise. And, Lord, I ask as we go to the worship service, Lord, that our hearts would be focused on you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your word. And, Lord, I pray that we would be changed because of it. Lord, thank you for the body at Calvary. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this Lord's Day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.